talking about those markets, what's very funny is to think about how a place like Hong Kong might look at this. Because Hong Kong is an incredibly crazy place and over the top. And they probably have the most luxury slamming you in the face everywhere (laughs) that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there's a Giorgio Armani department store in Hong Kong. That was retail, merchandising, and fashion expert Ann Cecil speaking about one aspect of retail sales, open-air markets, in this case, in Hong Kong. Global retail trends, opportunities, and the future, and how you might capitalize on those, will be our focus on the next two episodes of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Well, hello, Looking Forward listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to focus on the retail sector of the economy. In part one of this two-part series, episode number 87, we're going to explore how retailing has evolved over many decades right up until our present times. We'll learn about how retailing might differ to some degree in various parts of the world and about one of the latest trends in retail marketing. We'll also take a look at what impact COVID-19 has had on the retail sector. In part two of this two-part series, we'll take a further look at COVID's impact on retail sales, why some retailers have succeeded in the retail market while others have not, what the future of retail sales might look like, and we'll hear about some of the opportunities that may create for you, our Looking Forward listeners. Finally, we'll get some excellent guidance on how we can become better, savvier shoppers. To help us with all this, we've brought on a great guest expert. She's Ann Cecil. With 40 years of professional retail merchandising experience, plus over 30 years as an adult educator, Ann Cecil is your ideal merchandising maven. Specializing in visual merchandising, Ann shares the strategies, tactics, and practices that retailers use to change a browser into a customer. She has recently extended her Ono Made in the 191 consultancy programs into an online visual merchandising coaching platform, the VM Club, designed to educate independent retailers on how to use this important retail tool. Well, hi, Anne. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hello, Jeff. It's so great to be back. You are only the second alum that I've brought back. Wow. So that's I feel so something. honored. And you have been involved in the retail industry for a long time. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our audience, what is it about retail that makes you so attracted to that aspect of selling? There's just so many other possibilities, but you seem to be latching on to retail. I fell in love with retail, much like if the listeners have heard my previous conversation about shoes, I fell in love with retail when I was a young girl. I was so very lucky to grow up when department stores were really the model of the retail business. 
And I grew up in Philadelphia and my mother was from England. So I spent time in England as well and in London, which of course is a huge retail mecca. And I just fell in love with the department store. I have a great little story to tell, much like my shoe story, which was in Atlantic City. The retail story takes us to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where there was a department store called Hess's of Allentown. My mother was a child psychiatrist and she worked for the school district in Allentown. And every once in a while, I might not have had a school day when she had to go to work. So she would take me and the woman who cared for me up to Allentown with her. And while she was going about her business, she would drop us at Hess's and allow us to explore and have lunch at the department store. And the lunch at the department store, I would have been about six years old at this time, was the most exciting thing to me for two reasons. First and foremost, you sat down at the table and there was a bowl of sugar. And I know everybody's like, yeah, yeah, sugar, whatever. (laughs) This was no ordinary sugar. This were crystallized colored bits of sugar that looked very much like colored sprinkles fascinating to me. But the other clincher was that during luncheon at the department store, every lunchtime, there was informal modeling. Live models dressed in outfits from around the store walked silently through the restaurant holding a card that said what the clothes were, which floor you could find them on. And, you know, they would come and they'd come to your table and they'd stop for a minute and show you. And if you had questions, they would speak with you. But of course, I was too young to really have questions. But I remember feeling that it was such a special and glamorous thing to do as a a little girl. And it's something (laughs) that kind of just grew into my love of department stores all the way through. Wow. And so that's where the retail really started. Then you were so young, you were six years old. It reminds me of another store, which I must admit I really didn't go to, but very popular. You will know all about it. Wanamakers. Oh, yeah. And they did some really cool things, too, I understand. Yes. They did. And, you know, one of the things about Wanamakers that Wanamakers was, I actually worked for Wanamakers. Um, And (laughs) the Wanamakers today, the building in Philadelphia is now uh, taken over by Macy's. But I remember as a small child also going downtown to the Wanamakers store at Christmas to see the Christmas lights and they still do this show. The Wanamaker's building has one of the oldest organs in the country, and it's a fantastic pipe organ that is amazing. And everybody in Philadelphia would know, meet me at the Eagle. Yes, meet me at the Eagle. <laughs> you know, you're and right. And we still say it. <laughs> yeah, meet me at the Eagle. And, you know, I'm just going to say one other personal thing real quickly here. When you talk about this, you conjure up my own memories of being a child, growing up in Philadelphia. And my mother would take me as a young child to Lit Brothers department store where she would go shopping. I hate to use this. It's a terrible pun in a way, but it was kind of woven into the fabric of our early lives. Department stores and escalators and things like that. 
Yeah. Yes. You know, and of course, Strawbridge and Clothier and in Philadelphia, these were all very walkable from each other. It was quite the promenade at that point. You're right. They were clustered together. Now, before we discuss retail in broader strokes, and I wanted to ask you a question about your business. You seem to focus on serving businesses that operate independently as opposed to the multi-store operators or the big chains. Why is that? Okay, so I have two things to tell you about that. The real quickie is this. In my DNA, in my family history, my grandmother in England, she inherited a women's clothing store from her father. Mm. So there's retail in my history over there. There it is. <laughs> and on my dad's side, my grandfather ran a business school. So there's also that aspect is there as well. Yeah. But the reason that I really focus on independent retailers is because of this. Most independent retailers start their business because they love and are passionate about the category of business that they're going into. Sometimes if you are part of a family of independent retailers, you inherit the business from your parents or your grandparents. And so you may not have that passion, but you have a sense of loyalty to it, et cetera. What most small business people and independent retailers do not have is an undergraduate and graduate degree in retail. They are often lacking some of the key skills and some of the key knowledge that the large store chains have. And it has been my mission my entire career to bring that knowledge to independent retailers because much of that knowledge is not available in terms of like adult education. You would have to go to an institution to get either a two or four-year degree and then two more years for graduate study full-time to really get a lot of the information that your competitors who are larger stores will have from the executives that they hire. So that's why I did it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, and it makes so much sense to me because they're really learning on the job and that could really cause them to stumble an awful lot and maybe even unnecessarily. And here you are, hopefully giving them skills that will prevent them from making certain mistakes that could cost them a lot of money or time or business or whatever the case. Thank you for explaining that. That really makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> now, as you know, we're going to focus today on the retail industry today and to some extent in the future. But before we get to that, we're on looking forward. We like to have our guest experts take a little bit of a look backwards. So I would ask you over the last few decades before COVID hit us, we'll talk about COVID. How has, in your opinion, and the retail industry evolved? How has it changed? I know it certainly changed a lot from the Lit Brother days and Wanamakers and so forth. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Sure. So I'm going to just sort of briefly give a little bit of what was going on kind of in the, I would say in the 50s and the 60s. Sure. We had a number of different types of stores, and this is a global sort of model because I know we also like to talk globally with right. our audience here, Jeff. Yeah. And so, of course, 
some of the things that we have always had as human beings since we were able to sort of barter and go yes. into business is that we've always had a bunch of sort of open air markets and the market kind of platform. We also have had general stores where, you know, you went kind of to the general store and it had all kinds of things. It had dry goods and it had hardware and everything. And you could buy fabric to make a dress and you could buy a hammer and nails to build your house, you know. So we had kind of the general store. And we always had some specialty stores and these were often in shopping districts of areas that you lived in. So, you know, like I was telling you, my grandmother had inherited this women's clothing store. And in the 60s, in the early 60s, I remember this very well. It was the type of store where you would walk in and you would say to my grandmother, I would like a navy blue men's cardigan. And she had stacks of different types of navy blue men's cardigans on yeah. shelves behind uh-huh. the counter. Yes. And she might ask you a few questions and say, how much are you willing to spend? Would you like 100% wool? Yada, da, yada, da. And she would pull out two to three options that she had for you. And there was this big kind of personal selling. And this went on pretty much with even in the general store. It wasn't a like we walked in and we picked up what we wanted and we took it to the register kind of business or world. And department stores have been around since the 18, late 1800s, right? So they were also a model at this time. But even in the department stores, very often, you were not self-servicing until really we got kind of into the, I'd say, as we were moving through the 60s in America, through the 70s and through the 80s. And so the department store model was kind of the what the general store became. And I just want to go a little bit further back in history about the department store because I think it's worth noting and understanding that the department store started because we had a bourgeoisie. So we had women who were not constantly working. They were able to do and spend money, spend their husband's money (laughs) and and build a home, right? I mean, you know, so that's what their focus was. And why I wanted to say this is because the department store was incredibly important in this function because it was the first place, really, women were allowed to go unchaperoned. Hmm. So it became a really important, integral part of the development of women as we moved through the industrial era into the 60s and 70s and 80s. So what I was wanted to say is that when, once we got into the 80s, we were sort of at the end of the line for the big department stores. And what came in next were what we would like to call the branded specialty stores. So these would be like the Gap Banana Republic. So very different because when you went to a department store, you had both hard lines and soft lines, meaning you could buy furniture, tableware, sometimes on beds, et cetera, but you could also buy clothing and accessories and those kinds of things. In a specialty store, it generally has a true focus. And so for the gap, it started with sweats and denim and t-shirts. Now it does a little, it's, it's expanded, it's assortment some, but it's more about casual weekend dressing even to this day. Those specialty stores 
were also significantly different from the department store in terms of their business model. So if I was a department store buyer in the 1980s, I bought whatever category of merchandise I bought from other vendors. So if I worked for John Wanamaker's, I wasn't buying John Wanamaker label items. I was buying Max Mara, J.G. Hook. These were designers, you know, vendors from that time and their merchandise was coming into my store. That's a horizontal way of buying, meaning that I'm buying from a bunch of different people and pulling their collections into my store, whether it's furniture or whatever. Okay. In the Gap, they are a vertical marketing system. And what that means is with in-house vertically, they design, develop, produce, and then sell in the retail store their own labeled product. Mm. Now, what you will find in stores is, and this also happened in the 80s, that the stores that bought horizontally did go a little bit into private label. So for example, John Wanamaker's might have said, we're going to make our own cashmere sweaters under our own label. They would do the design, the production, the manufacturing of them and put them on the sales floor next to the Ralph Lauren ones. The reason you would want to do that is because when you have that vertical system, you've knocked out the middleman who is the sales rep for the vendor. So by default, on the items that you make and you produce yourself, you are able to get a higher margin, which is a return on your investment. Yes. So that's kind of what happened in the 90s. And then also in the 90s, the internet started to come in. So as the internet grew, Amazon came in, beginning of online retail was born. And then we went from e-commerce to social media, which blew the whole thing up into what we now call omni-channel retail. Omni-channel retail. Right. So that means that your store... Customers can access your store or have information from your store in a variety of different channels. So I have my brick and mortar. I might do ads on TV or radio. I might do billboards. So these are more traditional non-digital things. But I also have an e-commerce site. I have my own website, perhaps, which may be separate from my e-commerce site or in tandem with it. I would have my Facebook, I would have my Instagram, my Twitter, my Pinterest pages, Snapchat, TikTok, and so on. So if you are using all of those channels today as a retailer, you are hitting a variety of different audiences. And also your customer can now interact with you from a variety of different spaces. Wow. Those are big changes. Yes, they are. And they have been, I mean, I know you don't want to talk yet about COVID just a second, but I will just say this. This all was happening pre-COVID. The move towards this was happening towards pre-COVID. With COVID, much of this accelerated. So I will let that be the cliffhanger. (laughs) We're going to get to it, people. Hold on. We'll get to it. Now, you alluded to this, Anne, that the program, the podcast Looking Forward, is for a global audience. 
and many of them do not live in North America. So when you're talking about this evolution from the general store or the outdoor, whatever you might call it, a market, a farmer's market or a market of some kind, to the department stores, to the specialty stores, to the omni-channels, are the other countries in the world, I know you can't talk about all of them, but are many of these countries following that same pattern and following it at the same pace? Or how does the United States stand versus what's happened in other countries? Okay, well, obviously, because we are a developed country and we are one of the highest of the, you know, we're in the top tier of countries. We all kind of have a very, everybody who would be sort of in our strata would have followed the same system and would have the same kind of basic overall structures. Some of the emerging economies, right, are still building up to these things now. So in countries that are more rural, still agricultural countries, you may not have a huge department store that is having luxury goods in it yet, because that's not really what the economy can sustain at this point. But what I will say is the science of a retail store, it's all pretty simple, right? It all boils down to having a successful retail store is to make sure that what you sell covers your cost and allows for profit. A little bit of it's, profit. It's not really, you know, rocket science. Right. And every level of retail has to do that. The only thing that changes, of course, is the operational expenses as you get bigger and get into more and more things. So for example, that open air market that I was talking about, every culture in the world had and has open air markets. And open air markets are so amazing because, you know, you think about where they could be. So one place I always love to think about is like, I, I imagine myself in Africa, And I think about going to an open air market in Africa and what would be so great about it is, of course, Africa is a big country and there's multiple, you know, cultural divisions all across the country. And one of the best ways when you travel is to go to one open air market. And the thing that open air market does that's such an important part of retail is it engages your five senses just by being a market. So you walk into that market and you are bombarded with colors from everything that they are selling, be it garments or housewares or fruits and vegetables. And then you've got the smells because during those open air markets, there's usually people cooking or selling bakery goods or those kinds of things. And then of course, there's always the sounds And so one of the stories I love about an open air market that's a long time, but still exists is there is a flower market in London every Sunday. And when I visit my friends in London, we always take a trip down to the flower market and you still have the vendors calling out in Cockney London accents, Ah. various sales and things that they have. And, you know, then you think of all the, there's always garments interspersed into this cacophony of things and textiles. So now you have the element of touch. The people who have food are going to give you a taste. So now we've engaged your taste. Very often you might have music or other kinds of sounds within these markets. 
And what I love about these markets, because they are global and they happen everywhere, is that they're the thing that really give you the culture of the area. It's the best way to kind of soak in the culture of a new space to you, or even a space that you go to all the time. Now, talking about those markets, what's very funny is to think about how a place like Hong Kong might look at this. Because Hong Kong is an incredibly crazy place and over the top. And they probably have the most luxury slamming you in the face everywhere (laughs) that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there's a Giorgio Armani department store in Hong Kong. However, on the other end, there are also these open air markets and these night markets. And then one of the other sort of like things we don't like to talk about a lot in the fashion industry are the products that have been knocked off and are being represented as designer products. Those markets are also in Hong Kong. So back and forth from now talking about like extremely high to the extremely mass. The other thing that I wanted to kind of also tell you, because I think this is another really just fun one. And this is something that I think about whenever I have traveled to London again, because as we were talking about London, Oxford Street in London is one of the most well-known shopping streets in the world. The funniest thing about these stores is, so in London, they have sales only twice a year. They have a spring-summer sale in, in the summer and they have a winter sale in January. One of the things that I noticed and have always noticed is that when a sale is happening, these beautiful stores become clearance centers like you have never seen. (laughs) And the funniest part to me is Oxford Street, also known for its beautiful windows. I mean, store windows extraordinaire. Mm. When it is clearance time, they go down to their basement. They find every sale sign they ever had since that store was in existence and they plaster them willy-nilly in the windows. So you could have red and black sales signs mixed with yellow and black sales signs. Some will look like they're from the 1950s. Some will look like they're from the 1970s. Some might look like they're from the 1920s if they actually held up from that. (laughs) It's crazy. And you've got this store that, you know, on this huge street, beautifully done, usually top of the line visual merchandising in their windows, right? And all of a sudden, you look like you have walked into a going out of business sale. (laughs) (laughs) So again, this is just a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I'm not really sure why, but it is one of the things that strikes me. So I guess really just to focus what I have been saying that I think is really important is, yes, retail is kind of the same all over the world and different places globally might be in different stages of the types of retail that they have. But all places have very, they're working on the same science of it. I have to make more than it costs me to do and I have to make a profit. Yeah, It's much more, you know, I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's the basic part of it. But there's an art to it and the way that we sell things and the way that we visually put them together, which is the artistic side of it, can be very different culturally 
depending on the culture from which you come. Sure. That was a, a great overview. A quick comment and then a follow-up question. The comment would be that one variation for sure that we're not going to get into would be the kinds of products that sell big in one country versus another country. You know, the kinds of clothing, shoes, whatever it might be, might vary greatly from place to place. The question would be, you mentioned, Anne, as you talked about the evolution of retail, you mentioned omni-channels. Is omni-channels something that you might find today, something being used by a lot of countries, or is it principally these more developed countries where omni-channel is a factor? Well, I would say that it is because omni-channel is reliant on internet, it would be less likely that a country that is not able to bring internet to a lot of people at all would not be able to do so. However, though, when we look at every continent in the world, there are cities everywhere. And those cities may be able to have excellent access to the internet, where it is much more difficult for rural people to have. I mean, this is true in the United States. So in order for a consumer to be able to take advantage of omni-channel, and then likewise to make it worthwhile for the retailer to have omni-channels, they would have to be in a place where the retailer had access to the omni-channels via the internet and their customer base would also have access. You just have to think of it in terms of the people who have the ability to have it as opposed to where it would be geographically. That's very helpful. Thanks for clarifying that. And you touched on it before. Now we're going to really delve into it more deeply. COVID-19 has had a dramatic effect on most of our lives, some far worse than others. How has it impacted retail selling? Maybe you could give us some specific examples of that. Okay. Well, so the first thing that it has done is it has really changed what the brick and mortar store needs to do. So as you will recall, during the pandemic, when we all shut down, one of the big switches was that we went to being able to order things from online and then pick them up. Yes. So in terms of being a retailer, that would mean that your retail store now has to not just be about people coming in and self-serving themselves from the fixtures, but it has to be about you and your staff going through the store to pick the items for that person. Then they have to be packaged for that person to pick up. And then they have to be stored somewhere until those people come. So that's one big thing that has happened with retail. The second thing that kind of happened with retail, because I want to talk about all kinds of retail, Many retailers, for example, let's just think about a sewing machine store. They are a store that not only sells the sewing machine, but often teaches you how to use the sewing machine. So very often you have a retail model where you're teaching about something in your store. Well, now you physically can't do that. 
So in your classroom, you've now had to set up your classroom to be an online classroom. During the pandemic, many people started selling off of Facebook or Instagram live feeds. So now what they needed was a studio, (laughs) a TV studio. Yeah. So one of the big things that the pandemic did was it made us not, it used to be, you know, that they'd talk about for any business, right? That you'd have to be a content creator, a content creator, a content creator. Well, I like to say that the pandemic made us all have to be our own many broadcasting companies. Ah. So a few things that have happened. The other really critical thing that's happened though for retailers that's really, really very difficult to overcome is because many of the frontline workers during the pandemic came up against so much resistance and there's, there was a lot of negativity in the press and for other reasons, it is very hard to get staff now who will work in retail stores. Now, one of the other elements was the pay. And there are many retailers who are addressing that. But what I find interesting, Jeff, and I work with a lot of independent stores, and these are family-owned businesses who are treating their workers very well. You know, they're treating them like family. And even these stores are having a tremendous problem hiring people. And they are paying a living wage and they're giving out benefits. This concludes part one of our two-part series on global retail trends, opportunities, and the future, and how you might capitalize on those with our guest expert, Ann Cecil. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Ann or me, please contact me at my website, www.jeff-ostroff.com. And if you like this episode, I'd really appreciate your liking it or giving it a positive review on the podcast hosting site where you listen to it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.